90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? I'm doing well. How about yourself? Can't complain. It's (laughs) finally not super blazing hot, and I think that's going to stick around for a little while. I know. Don't jinx it. It's still got a – my car still said 104 this afternoon, but this morning it was 64, and that was just lovely. We have had one night in the high 50s, which (gasps) was awesome. Oh, so jealous. I forgot what 50s feel like. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, um, my son has to wear – all the kids come out of his junior high every day, and they're in sweatshirts, like full hoodies and pants. <laughs> and I was like, son, what is happening in your school? And he said it's like 50 degrees in every classroom. Awesome. Maybe we could save some money and pay teachers more by not making it 50 degrees. <laughs> Right, exactly. Full sweatsuits, man. It's hilarious. That's crazy. Yeah, it's super funny. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know Sarkis. I mean, you walk into – this is a building I work in. Um, and it's like you walk into one room and it's 40 degrees. And you walk into the next room and it's 98. So, yeah. Yeah, there is no consistency no, in that building. Correct. And like the change of spring and fall are the worst because it seems to hijack itself completely. But, you know, that's – all I can complain about. It's been a pretty good week, actually. So nice. Yep, not enough stuff to grade yet that I'm not behind. <laughs> yeah, so we don't. We we can skip that whole part of the intro. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're uh, getting a lot of equipment out the door because it's that time of year where if it's going to Antarctica, it needs to be getting on the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're getting some several pallets out uh, and we got things going to other places than Antarctica too, but just getting it a, a lot of projects finishing up in the same two week span, which is actually pretty nice. Oh yeah. Well next week it'll be nice. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, there's plenty to follow. We've got a lot more behind them, uh, but it is kind of nice. You know, we were able to find like bare bench space for the first time in three months. <laughs> Um, yes, this last weekend, my husband sort of threatened my life with creating bare bench space that I've been taking up in his shop. So I actually, um, spent the holiday weekend refinishing chairs and that was super exciting. Let me tell you. (laughs) Yeah. Someone asked what I was going to do for Labor Day weekend and I said, well, it's Labor Day. So you work twice as hard as normal. Gosh, you know, our trash came on Labor Day. And I thought, what are you guys doing? Like, that's not right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then everyone put their trash out on Tuesday and no trash came. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was a weird Labor Day, I guess. I also did work twice as hard. That's that's crap. <laughs> yeah. No, we had the, the business was officially closed. And there were no employees there or anything. Mm-hmm. But that's um, when you can get stuff was... done, right? <laughs> I was there for a while and getting some things done around home and getting some things done around the hangar and yeah, very busy. Yeah, but that's good. I mean, you know, when you don't have to worry about anybody walking in and you can do some stuff, that's always nice too. Exactly. And I gave myself a crazy sunburn welding. Uh, (laughs) um, Yeah, that's not unusual around this house either. (laughs) 
<laughs> yep. Well, I was out in the sun doing it. Oh. And was in short sleeves welding. I didn't have that much welding to do, but apparently the combination was enough. Mm, too much. That, well, it was like between where my farmer's tan ends and where that <laughs> particular short sleeve shirt ended, there was just like a band about an inch, inch and a half wide of blazing lobster red. <gasps> oh, that's the best. <laughs> my other favorite is when people like sit on a picnic bench too long and they get that bl- band like right above their butt crack gets sunburned. That's really funny too. <laughs> you're cruel oh man it's always the best like yep that's gonna hurt tomorrow (laughs) well so you know that's between us shipping a lot of things out that are going to the field and me getting some some real memorable field experience (laughs) this weekend just like good old times uh, i thought this would be a good opportunity to talk about what we have to do to make these crazy sensitive scientific instruments that we use last in the real world. Oh yeah. Cause this is probably something that if you're trying to think of like your field campaign and like what you want to do, like you first say like, this is what I want an instrument to do, but then you have to like go back and rejigger everything based on the stuff that'll actually work. Right. For sure. And you know, the, the main things you always have to think about are like power. Mm-hmm. How am I going to power it? How is that power going to get sustained? Your data. How am I going to get my data back from the field? Do I have to go pick it up? Am I going to transmit it? Am I going to transmit it via satellite? Am I going to have Wi-Fi? Uh, what am I going to do with that data when I get it back? How am I going to keep this thing safe from the weather and the elements? Hmm. There, there's just a ton of considerations and any one of them failing renders the entire oh. apparatus useless. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. So this is something, you know, you talked about in your workshop and there are some parts that I definitely made a lot of notes about because there were things that I wouldn't have thought about when you were going over you know, what are your considerations? So that's interesting. But I do have to, before we start, because you already brought it up, I remember your first shipment to Antarctica and how scary it was. Does it get any easier every year? Are you less stressed about it? No. (laughs) If it's a product that we've done before, then it's slightly less stressful because we know how to make it and it's survived one season already. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But there's always some weird issue. Or, you know, like what we're doing right now, we're getting ready to send some instruments out that they're going to be helicoptered out to where they're going to go. And no humans will ever go back here. (gasps) Oh, my gosh. So these instruments will last until their instrument tower gets buried with snow and can no longer see the satellites, which will probably be about 18 months. Uh That's crazy. And if something goes wrong... Nobody can go unplug it and plug it back in. If a fuse blows, nobody can go replace it. Like you can't be like, oh, we didn't get the right calibration data on that. Like once it's gone, it is never going to be seen again. Wow. So that's pretty scary. Um, and also like way to litter up Antarctica with your name all over it. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> The, these nice orange boxes that say Lehman Geophysical will become part of the geologic record. Yeah, exactly. 200 years from now, they'll be like, what? What is this? <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> or they'll be like, oh, and they'll pray to it, right? Because you will have taken over the world. 
<laughs> they will become intelligent. And no, uh, it is a little bit terrifying though, because these are, it's an instrument that we've developed in the last 12 months. Okay. And it's a, we weren't going to have to handle the telemetry side of this until a few months ago. Ah. <laughs> and then it became suddenly, actually, well, we need telemetry too. So this is all new product. Okay. So no, it doesn't get less stressful. <laughs> and I've been testing it. And, you know, right now it's been running for seven or eight days mm -hmm. in just in the shop because I found a bug that would only manifest itself after about 36 hours of running. Oh, man. Thank God you found it. <laughs> I found it. I corrected it. But it's one of those things where, well, okay, what's going to happen two months in? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Scary. And so I've, I've built in some things called watchdogs, which a lot of instruments have, that basically says the instrument, uh, it has to tell the watchdog timer every so often, I'm alive, I'm working as I should be. Okay. And if it doesn't, after so many, in this case, it's 20-something seconds, the watchdog will basically unplug it and plug it back in again. Oh, nice. Okay. <laughs> now, it's built on the processor, which that's kind of like having one kid watch another, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's on yep. the processor that it's monitoring, <laughs> but it is a separate thing on that processor. Okay. Uh, I would like to build in the future a totally separate power line switch that's like a hard, hard reset. Mm, yeah. Okay. That makes sense. <laughs> um. But yeah, that's in, you know, we used to say that uh, when you basically reset that timer on the watchdog, you would call it kicking the dog, but that became inappropriate. <laughs> uh, so now it's called petting the dog. Oh my gosh. <laughs> but yeah, so every, in, in my case, every four seconds, we, we pet the watchdog. And <laughs> if it goes more than about 20 something seconds without getting pet, it gets angry and reboots the whole system. Oh man, I've already in my mind envisioned like 50 little puppy dog, you know, logos that you need to inscribe on this one particular part of your board. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Petting the dog. Hmm. Okay, great. Is this something that like people ask for? Do people know about this? <laughs> no. Okay. It's just some brilliant thing that somebody came up with that now everyone does. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's something that if you're in, Electrical engineering, firmware engineering, anything like that. Yeah, you know about it. Okay. All right. Great. Uh, but it's a typical scientific customer that comes to us. Absolutely not. Right. And so that's what that's what's so interesting to me. And with, you know, my experience with you guys rebuilding the sample handler, um, because actually that's what we did today in my PMAG class is we went and, you know, I may actually made my students go back and listen to our Gosh, it was like episode 167 or 197 quite a while ago um, about like what the cryogenic magnetometer is. And right. so I made them listen to that. And then we went down there today to like look at it and all that. And so there were so many parts that, you know, I just wanted to do this. And, you know, the students were asking me, they're like, oh, so like he had to totally like reverse engineer the whole thing. He had to like see what the magnetometer does and then figure it out backwards to make the sample holder. I was like, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and 
it was interesting to me all the things like I didn't know about this machine that I touched literally every day. Right. Yeah. And so like I can imagine like you have this idea and somebody brings it to you. I'm not talking about anyone specific, but, you know, brings it to you and you're like, OK, that's cool, but you're going to stick it outside. So this is what I have to do to it. All these things you don't a scientist wouldn't think about. Well, and it makes sense. It's not a bad thing. It's just, no. well, you're a seismologist, let's say. You know, you've spent your life studying seismology and signal processing, and a seismometer is the thing that gives you the data you work with. Mm -hmm. You have no reason to think about, and I wonder how the engineers implemented the reboot procedure if the processor locked. Like, there's no reason for you to worry about that, but you're depending upon it. Yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. So, like, this is... Not something we did when I took PMAG or anything. We didn't go down and talk about like exactly how things work, like where the squid control boxes are and all this stuff. And it's like this was something I actually wanted to do with my students because I feel like we've gotten so far away from that disconnect that nobody knows how to run anything anymore. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that's that's very interesting. Um, I mean – so many of the considerations about equipment because geophysics is just batteries, right? It's so many batteries. <laughs> like, is that something you talk about all the time? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I just spent, I'm going to say over $1,400 in shipping alone on batteries. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> just shipping. Yeah, not including the batteries. Wow. Okay. That's like... Uh, because geophysics is batteries. Yes, it is. So like five tons of double A's? Like, what, what does that buy you? <laughs> yeah, so no, these were big... They're, they're actually designed for off-grid homes. Mm. Uh, deep discharge batteries for solar systems to power. Because for an Antarctic deployment, you don't really get the typical solar... <laughs> profile oh i didn't even think about that <gasps> so the system has to last at minus 40 degrees fahrenheit or celsius doesn't matter <laughs> um it has to last at minus 40 degrees for six months wow and then it gets six months to charge back up that's so interesting yeah i hadn't even thought about that so instead of you know for a typical deployment at mid-latitudes let's say I would only have 12 and 12. <laughs> well, I would put enough battery to run the system for say four or five days. Because mm, if it's cloudy, if it's cloudy, if there's a storm, if some something, you know, the solar panel gets dirty and nobody goes out to clean it for six months. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I would put enough battery capacity in for a few days. And then I would put a pretty good size solar panel on it so that it will charge in say six hours maybe eight, but you know, you're not going to get great because you don't have trackers on the panel to point them at the sun. Right. So yeah, I try to shoot for, you know, six to eight hour charging and several day battery reserve. But in this situation, I needed six months of capacity. <laughs> so it's two giant solar home batteries in parallel. Oh man. But I have six months to charge, so it's three teeny five-watt solar panels. <laughs> Phenomenal cosmic power and itty-bitty living space. 
<laughs> because I don't want to have huge solar panels because one, they had to cost and two, they catch a lot of wind and there's yeah. a lot of wind mm-hmm. in Antarctica. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I can lower our, it's all about managing risk. Right. I can lower the risk of this thing getting blown off the tower if I use smaller panels and yeah, my calculations say it's going to take like two months for my system to charge. But I don't care. But that's okay. Because I have six months of sunlight. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. That's incredible. I had to even... And I just put three panels at 120 degrees around the top of the tower because the sun just spins around mm-hmm. in the sky, basically. <laughs> so one of those panels will get light, full light for part of the day. And yeah, there you go. But it's totally different than how you would do it in mid-latitudes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Man. You're going to have to go down. Like, somebody's got to pay for you to go down and and do all this stuff, right? Like, Oh, please, somebody. <laughs> I'm going to stop writing manuals. <laughs> You're like, oh, do you have a problem? I'll sell you this page. <laughs> no, I, I am the manual. <laughs> oh, geez. There's a lot of jokes there, but we'll just... <laughs> right. <laughs> we'll just keep going. Um, So, at minus 40... Fahrenheit or Celsius. Um, what are the boxes that you use? Like, does a Pelican case do the job here? Do you need something different for all this equipment? They do the job. Um, I don't know that I would submit them to shock. Okay. Like, if you drop it mm-hmm. at minus 40 off the back of a four-wheeler, yeah. it's probably not going to go so well. Mm-hmm. But luckily, I mean, once they deploy these and they're deploying them in the summer when it's basically around zero Celsius, uh, yeah, they're fine there. And then they just get buried under snow in the winter anyway. Oh, okay. Okay. Interesting. And I will say, uh, I have become really a fan of this company called Nanook. Okay. N-A-N-U-K. They make Pelican-like cases. I like their latches way better. They don't rip my fingernails off. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. (laughs) Uh, The case is of a high quality. Mm -hmm. They have a built-in panel frame, which I have to buy separately from Pelican and install, and they never install right. Oh, okay. Um, And they're comparable to less expensive. Hmm. Well, They're a Canadian company, and I'm, I'm a huge raving fan for them. We were converting a bunch of our stuff to to work in Nanook cases now. That is interesting. I'll have to see if... Oh, they have a wide variety of shapes as well. Yeah, we've got one product that, maybe two, that they don't make a case that would be a compatible fit for. Wow. Uh, that are going to have to stay with Pelican. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I'm, I'm quite thrilled with them. Yeah, that's still pretty good. Um... Interesting. Yeah, I am. I'm looking at them now, too. We always need better cases to ship the drill in, you know, or even to ship rocks home in. So there's a couple of quite good contenders. All right. Yeah. And the other thing that I've shipped some stuff in recently, though, I I mean, we are using it in the field to deploy these batteries uh, is uh, drink coolers. <laughs> Like from Sam's. I love it. I love that that is a... Mm-hmm. <laughs> They're not waterproof, but we don't really need them to be. They're just going to get snowed on here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it's not going to melt. <laughs> That's awesome. 
<laughs> okay. Yeah. Just your good old igloo cooler. <laughs> hmm. Nice. Exactly. That's nice. Now, Grant, somebody said, well, the wheels fall off when you put 100 pounds of batteries. In. Well, sure, but are you really going to wheel these around in snow? Right. Yeah. Like, how much are you using those in the first place? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. How big is this piece of equipment that you have these massive batteries for? <laughs> That's the best part. <laughs> okay. I knew it. <laughs> so the the transmitter that receives the data from the equipment and transmits it to a satellite mm-hmm. is a little bit smaller than a shoebox. Okay. <laughs> the sensor, like the thing that's doing all the measuring that they care about mm-hmm. is the size of a hockey puck. <laughs> I love it. So for a hockey puck size piece of equipment, we have about 300 pounds of support equipment. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. That makes me super happy. <laughs> Yeah, but it's like it's that support equipment that you just don't think about when you're like, I want you to build this thing, and you get three hundred extra pounds of stuff that goes with it. <laughs> or somebody says, you know, like, well, we just need to get it. We just need twelve volt power for it. It's like, ooh, that that is a whole subdomain right there. <laughs> oh, that's funny. And oftentimes, the enclosure and the power cost more than the sensor. Yep, I can see that. Since geophysics is just batteries. <laughs> well, or you think about a seismometer. Okay, the seismometer is expensive. Let's say it's 20, 25 grand for the sensor. Mm-hmm. You need batteries. You need big solar panels. You need a satellite modem. You need the data for that satellite modem. You need a tower to mount the solar panels on into the ground. You're going to have to dig a hole to put it in. So you're going to have to rent a backhoe wherever you are and get it out there. By the time you actually get the station installed and up and running with all the support equipment, the sensor is the least of your cost worries. <laughs> That's so nuts. <laughs> uh, science is the worst sometimes. <laughs> well, and these are the things, too, that I think I've told this story many episodes ago. And the abbreviated version is somebody was looking at a data set that I collected. I think it was gravity. This is a long time ago, though and complaining about the lack of points in one area. And I showed them on a topo map that it was a bluff. <laughs> well, sh- it would have been nice if we could have got one point up there. Like, Do you do you, do you want to go hike 1,200 foot <laughs> elevation change right now? Uh, uh, uh. I mean, you know, seems like field geophysics right there. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's awesome. So there's a lot of factors that you don't consider when you're looking at data. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. And and also, you know, you hear, well, it has to be perfectly blah. And somebody will say, well, it has to be perfectly level or it has to be perfectly perpendicular. And that single word drives me nuts. (laughs) I bet. Because there is no such thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How level, how perfect, well, it needs to be perfect. Nope. Nope. (laughs) Not an option. Working with all these type A academics has to be awesome when explaining that part. (laughs) (laughs) We don't take that well. (laughs) Well, because at the end of the day, you got to remember there's somebody, if it's a seismometer, there's somebody out there with a backhoe digging a hole that it's going to go in. Right. Yeah. You can get it really close. Now, how much money you want to spend on getting it 
as close to perfectly level as you can. Like, yeah, we can pour a concrete pad in the bottom of that hole, then we can use a gyro compass to get its orientation, and we can use a tilt meter to level. Oh, yeah, we can do all that. Right. But it's very expensive. Yeah, do you need that? Do you need it? Mm-hmm. I mean, everyone wants to say yes, but we probably don't need it. <laughs> well, it, the yeses flow less as you start putting price points on each option. <laughs> all right, fair enough, fair enough. Um, batteries and equipment cases. So that's what I have. What I can think of things that fail on us are things that people can pull on. (laughs) So like, is that something you think about in the field? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Because it seems like in the lab, if someone's not supposed to yank on it, they will. So how do you fix that? Yeah, well, you make everything bomb proof because yeah, if it's a cable, somebody's going to pull it out of the ground by that or try to. Yes. Every time. Or if it's a cable, some animal's going to come try to eat through it. Mm. Or if it's a cable in Antarctica, somebody's going to bend it when it's really cold out and shatter the insulation off of it. Uh, Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. So you have to buy special stuff or if it's something that's going in a lab that deals with bio stuff, it's going to get autoclaved, and unless you buy the right cable, it's going to melt. Ooh, the autoclave. I didn't think about that. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah, there are a lot of conditions for stuff like that. Uh, people will – and also, people will do whatever's easiest, not whatever you tell them to. Mm-hmm. Correct. <laughs> uh, so, you have to make it easy to do the right behavior. Did you know that you were going to have to deal with so much psychology when you did this? <laughs> no. No, I was just talking with somebody about this earlier uh, today about how it's funny to me how you can tell somebody, like, you have to do this or it's going to cost money because it's going to break this thing. And if that's the easy way to do it, that's still what they're going to do. <laughs> uh, because mm-hmm. we had some some products come back for, I'm not going to say exactly warranty work because it wasn't really a manufacturing defect. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll call it improper use that was encouraged by our design work. <laughs> of, yeah, this wouldn't have broken if it had been used correctly. But, but you could also, see. <laughs> I see why you did this. Right, yeah. Okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. and then you know there's a whole field of things like we're not going to get through all near all the stuff that i talked about in the workshop of course but uh, just thinking about batteries there's tons of trade-offs uh the size the weight the power density the price the voltage that they output uh, what the recharge requirements are does it produce gas when it recharges and do you need to do something with that gas mm-hmm these are all things that you have to think about with batteries and they influence your battery choice and you can't have all of them. Yeah. Yep. Hmm. There's a lot to, it, do you have like a, a fancy, like I'm trying, I'm thinking about going to a florist and being like, here's our fancy brochure of prom corsages. <laughs> Like, do you have this for batteries? Like, I want to see that. 
No, it's probably something we should make or at least do a blog post on, though. Yeah, I really hope you do. (laughs) And just be like, hey, make sure you read this thing about all your options for batteries. Well, because if you want to spend a ton of money, there are some great options, but generally you don't. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, Yeah. And it's like, well, everybody thinks, well, just use a car battery. Like, that's great. Sometimes. Right. Sometimes it's not. Or, you know, what are the temperature requirements? These batteries that we're sending to Antarctica, they will be about 30 to 40% of their capacity at low temperature. That's why we have to stack so many in. Wow. And some batteries, when you get them cold, you know, we've uh, done some upper atmosphere ballooning instruments that we learned very quickly what types of batteries fail Hmm. at very Mm -hmm. cold temperatures because we have one instrument that works perfect in ground testing and failed in a simulated flight test in a thermal chamber. And it was all because as soon as we hit, I mean, predictably, as soon as we hit about minus 25 Celsius, the battery just is like you disconnected it. Oh, man. Okay. So there's tons of considerations and everybody says, well, lithium ion batteries are the answer. They're great for some things, but they're really not the answer a lot of times. Okay. Why? Well, for one, you always have to think about the failure mode of things. Okay. Yeah. The failure mode of lithium ion batteries is fire. Gotcha. Which is devastating. (laughs) Which is devastating. Okay. Uh, In some situations, that may not matter. Right. But they're hard to ship and expensive to ship because of that. Mm -hmm. And so if you have to ship batteries, think about that. Mm -hmm. Or like you're setting up a seismometer in, I don't know, the California Highlands. Like You could be the cause of the next major (laughs) multi-hundred thousand acre fire based on your battery choice. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. That's true. But they have a lot of advantages too. Because, for example, when you charge them, they can be in a pretty much sealed container. Whereas a lead acid battery generates hydrogen gas. And there have been several very big, expensive craters found where instruments used to be (laughs) because gas venting wasn't considered. (laughs) That's terrifying. Just terrifying. Okay. Yeah. So there's lots of considerations there. and, you know, people hear about like, uh, or might remember, nickel metal hydride batteries. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but one thing that really doesn't get, or NICAD, uh, one thing that doesn't get appreciated a lot in my mind, though, is just good old alkaline batteries. Okay. Why are they underappreciated? Because they're not sexy batteries? <laughs> well, <laughs> they don't recharge. Right. Which, if your system has to recharge, okay. Yeah, sure. There, you're out. Mm-hmm. Does your system need to recharge, or can you just go in and replace them? Well, or is it you know there's a pretty famous instrument out there used for active seismic work called Texans, right? Yeah. You throw some D cells in it, screw it together, and you know you got two days to collect your data. Mm-hmm. And yep, you go buy packs and packs and packs of D cells before you go do your field campaign. But you never have to say like, oh, hold on, that one's not charged. Or you never yeah. have one catch on fire. Mm-hmm. 
There's a lot to be said for alkaline batteries if you can use them. And also the availability of them too. I remember spending two days at field camp trying to find some dumb, weird battery type for this EM instrument that we had. So, you know. Yeah. And in our instruments, you know, we try to use either common batteries or provide terminals for you to connect something. Or if it's like a backup battery for a clock, unless space doesn't allow, which it almost always does, we use CR2032s. Okay. Because yeah. you can find those any at Walmart, anywhere. Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But yeah. I mean, a double A battery, you're going to find a double A battery pretty much wherever you go in the world. Yeah. And that, that was a big wasted couple of days. So. I was wondering if that's actually a thing. I was actually talking to somebody about this just this last week. Like, is that a thing that we're trying to, I feel like, you know, on computers, everybody's going to this USB-C, which is annoying right now, but like everything has it. Are we doing that with batteries? I feel like there was a, an era of very specific instrument specific batteries. I don't know that we're going to that, Ugh, but we should. we're seeing... <laughs> Yeah, we're seeing fewer instrument-specific batteries just because it's becoming price prohibitive to get custom batteries made. Okay. All right. Uh, And there are so many options out there that are pre-made. You don't need one. Okay. Um, But, yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, that's one thing that I would love to see more instruments. None of our instruments work with USB-C right now Mm -hmm. and, you know, charge that way or anything. I would love to start seeing that happen, though. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Granted... By the time everything gets switched to USB-C, there will be another revision. (sighs) And we'll start. I mean, this is how the cycle of technology goes. Yeah. Uh, But USB-C is a fantastic product. Mm -hmm. Is it? (laughs) It is. (laughs) I mean. Though it also is complicated. You know, USB regular, let's call it, USB 2, <laughs> USB 3, mm-hmm. basically. Um, I don't want to get into the details of how USB 2 and USB 3 do data transfer and the differences because I will quickly get in trouble. <laughs> but the power, let's just focus on power and charging. Mm-hmm. There's a ground and a 5-volt connection, and they provide up to some fixed current. Okay. And that's how you charge with those. With USB-C, there's a process of charge negotiation. So you plug a USB-C device into a USB-C charger, and the device will say, hey, charger, these are the different input voltages and maximum currents that I can allow to charge safely. And the charger will say, well, these are the output voltages that I have available and how much current I can provide on each of them. And they will go back and forth down a list until they find a suitable fastest charge. Oh, cool. There's actually communication across USB-C, even just to charge. Wow. All right. That's why you can't cut a USB-C cable apart and hook it to a battery like you could with an old one. Ah. Um, And there's an embedded .fm from a while back where they talk about this. That's really cool. I did not know that at all. Yeah. So it's more complicated, but it's really nice. And it's how I can plug my iPad in to a high current charger and have it charged in 35 minutes. Um, That was the other. Yes. I was going to mention that, that when I use my, yeah, 
USB-C charger for my phone. It's impressive. Impressive. Well, it's just like, you know, I, uh, I just shipped an instrument, a custom instrument to somebody that plugs into AC power to charge and it takes eight to 12 hours to charge. And it could charge off USB-C in a tenth that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the price versus this is going to sit in a lab plugged in for nine tenths of its life. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't worth it right now. But it's something I'd like to move towards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That makes total sense. Hmm. Uh, but enclosures, so that's, that's probably enough about batteries. And <laughs> but telemetry that's all is a about. whole other show. <laughs> that part was very interesting to me too. And so, yeah, we can just talk about that on its own because that's not something I've ever had to deal with in all of my field work. You know, like, <laughs> right. I don't have to worry about that. <laughs> well, and one of the big things that, you know, I'll just say this about telemetry is Getting your data back is one thing. What you do with it after you get it back is just as important as the whole mission. Well, yeah. <laughs> because if you deploy an instrument, you know, you fly to rural Nevada, deploy a network of instruments, they start streaming data, and then because of a bug in a Python script, it never gets logged. Mm-hmm. Whoops. Oh, that's rough. Um, yeah, it's very rough and something that we're we're actually doing a lot with uh, Amazon Web Services now mm-hmm. in respect to doing this. So I've set up a whole pipeline for data coming in via satellite telemetry. Oh, cool. To go into Amazon Web Services and then we have some utilities that we've written that allow customers to just say, go get me all the most recent data from my instruments. That's safe and nice. <laughs> Well, and it's backed up multiple places. We yeah. you know, Amazon keeps backups of our database. We run backups of it and store them in the cloud. We also run backups of them and store them off the cloud locally in our data center. Sounds amazing. <laughs> right. Because um, also, if you lose your data, I mean, we did a whole show on backups, but if you lose right. your data, you might as well never collected it. Um, our whole show on backups is very outdated now. It is, and we should probably do it again. We probably my, my backup methodology has changed. I would be very interested to do that show again. That's for sure, because mine has changed as well. I mean, besides right. that, I do it. <laughs> right. <laughs> I've always sort of done it, but yeah. Hmm. Okay, we should totally do that. Well, now that we've but, lined uh, out the next three weeks worth of shows. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, we got. <laughs> We've got telemetry to talk about. We've mm-hmm. got enclosures to talk about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, data backups. Uh, but, you know, these are all really versions of problems that have been solved or somewhat solved before, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. But just like you said, stuff keeps moving forward. So there's always a different, sometimes better way. Right. And that brings us to everybody's favorite segment of the show. Fun Paper Friday. (laughs) That was a beautiful segue that I sort of stomped on, but also inadvertently didn't stomp on because, yeah, this thing is not a new and better version. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, Gosh, I have so much to say about this, but I'll let you go ahead and introduce it. (laughs) 
Well, I'm very curious because before the show, you wouldn't even talk about the paper, which is rare. Um, <laughs> and I will say we're not doing this to step all over somebody. Uh-huh. Uh, listener Daryl sent this paper in. I have heard about this paper from numerical methods classes for years. Uh-huh. The paper is a mathematical model for the determination of total area under glucose tolerance and other metabolic curves by Thai. And it's in diabetes care from the nineties. Um, but just saying that I would say, Oh, what did they do to the integral then? <laughs> but they that, reinvented it. <laughs> that word is never in this paper. It's drawn in the paper. And the frequent use of talking about rectangles and triangles in those areas to delineate the space under a curve? Uh, yeah, so an integral? <laughs> yes, they they came up with an integral from first principles again because apparently they did not understand that it already existed since Newton. Well, and really it existed since way before then probably, right? Um, yeah, okay, it was formalized by Newton. Correct. Uh <laughs> Who's the other guy that came up with them at the same time? And so we call it an integral, but there was another great word. Do you know who this oh. is? Because uh, it's a hilarious yes. name. Um, I'm going to try to, like, it was really funny, the word that they. Uh, Leibniz. Yes. Okay. Yeah, it was Leibniz. But what did he call them? <laughs> Uh, let's see. I'm going to look that up right now. Because it was real good. <laughs> so let's see. The integral. Oh, no. So Leibniz did. We used Leibniz's name, which was the integral, right? Even though it's attributed to Newton. Okay. I'm still finding stuff from back in Greek days here. Okay. But there's a really funny name for it. It's not like Fluxion or something, but it's a really funny name. Um, well, I'll, I'll look that up, yep, but yep, what yep. do you have to say about this but paper? It was just so shocking. How did this get published? I mean, if this is a great method, but it's just integration. Like, this method has already come up, and the first thing I thought, when they, they say three formulas have been developed by these three people, to calculate the total area under a curve, none of which was Newton. <laughs> like, right. you know what I mean? <laughs> like, I thought, no, wait, no, there's, that's way earlier than that 1990 paper you're referencing. <laughs> so there's three other papers that talk about this too. <laughs> so well, I and don't somebody, there's a whole thread understand. on this paper. <laughs> Like on, I don't know if it was Reddit or Stack Exchange. There was this whole thread. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know, they said, well, journals, some journals, a lot of journals don't have to publish hard hitting work. They just have to publish something that's not factually wrong. Okay. Which is, I, I would argue this doesn't even fall in that necessarily. Because, yeah, yeah it's not wrong, but it also isn't. It's not that it's not new. It's literally already existed since almost Greek days. Yes. Yes, exactly. Literally already existed. And I mean, well, yes. 
And, you know, they talk about verification of the model, and the model is just the summations of all these rectangles and triangles under a curve. Yeah. I mean, this is what you learn in numerical methods, like day two. Yes, exactly. It's like page five in the calculus book, right? Um, yeah. Flexion is what Newton called them. So uh, excellent. Newton and Leibniz were doing calculus-ish at the same time, and so... We use Leibniz notation, which is integral. And Newton called them a flexion. And I remembered it and I couldn't believe it. <laughs> Flexions. Amazing. <laughs> well, and if you want to look up some uh, some numerical methods to see other ways that you can numerically calculate integrals with non-analytic answers, which will look very familiar here in this paper, mm -hmm. uh, you can look up things like the midpoint rule. Or the yeah. trapezoidal rule. Mm -hmm. If you want to get really fancy, Simpson's rule. Oh, look at that. I mean, this is like in high school, you could take trigonometric calculus or calculus, or not calculus, trigonometric physics. based physics, right? Or calculus based physics. Like, this is the difference. One, you have to actually count your stuff, and then the other one, you just integrate. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. This was. Extremely surprising to me because I thought most life science majors also still have to take calculus for the life sciences. I I thought so as well. I mean, I know they use a ton of statistics. Right. But there are still like. And statistics are based on calculus. We don't have to teach it that way. Right. Yeah. It's very interesting. But yeah, I was shocked that. I mean, everybody. I have. I would say probably mid undergraduate career was like, I need to find a root of this non-analytic equation and basically reinvented uh, the Newton Rapson <laughs> root finder. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then coded it and got that to work and then found out there's a thing called Newton Rapson <laughs> and coded that and then found out like, Oh, every, every numerical library on the face of the earth for every programming language has, has this. this. Uh, okay. So when we're saying we're not making fun of this because you know what, if I were this author and I wrote this and then found out that Isaac Newton did the same thing, I would feel pretty good about myself. <laughs> well, and also how do you, like I didn't find the thing I was looking for because I didn't know what it was called. I didn't know that it was called a root finding problem. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Correct. I didn't know. And also, you know, this is in the early 90s. Google wasn't, you, you couldn't type like area under a curve into Google and get a thousand results on integration. Correct. And why would you ever call it a fluxion or an integral? Like, If you didn't know where to go in the library card catalog. Mm-hmm. Or didn't have a friend in the math department to go talk to. I can see how you could do this. Correct. And I would still feel amazing about myself. <laughs> but also, coming up with this. in peer review, this should have been immediately like... So mm. that's the failing of this paper. It has nothing to do with this person or their methods. It has everything to do with the fact that this got published. Right? Yes. Yeah. Like I said, and again, I'm some would argue, great. well, it's not a failure peer review because it's it's not factually wrong, but also <sighs> the, the, the volume of scientific literature is so high we can't publish already done things. Yes, not like this. <laughs> I mean, this right. is yeah, this is fundamental. Exactly right. So, like I said, 
I would feel great about myself. I remember I came up with some ideas that I was going to pitch. I just like you saying that I came up with these ideas that I was going to pitch for my thesis or my dissertation ages ago. And I wouldn't like, well, I better search literature. And there were two nature papers about it. And I was like, man, <laughs> you know, like how dare they get to this idea first? But also right. my idea was good enough to be in nature. <laughs> exactly. So, so like, that's how I would feel about this. Instead of being like, oh yeah, oops. It'd be like, no, I invented calculus. Look, <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. And we, oh, yeah, we have to do a paper about, or a whole show about peer review and all that jazz. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yeah. So, thanks, Daryl, and uh, several other folks that have pointed me in the direction of this paper before, but Daryl reminded me that it existed. Mm-hmm. And, said, hey, this would be one, a good one to talk about. And I never would have really thought of it for a fun paper because, well, what is there to talk about? But there's this whole discussion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's, it's a very, it's a very interesting look into how some science gets done. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Shannon, if folks have their own thing that they've rediscovered... <laughs> And would like to send it to us to talk about and uh, publish in our own special way (laughs) here. Uh, How can they send in those new but not so new discoveries? Our 10 listeners will hear about it. Uh, Maybe send it to us. Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. You can tweet us. We're at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman. I'm at Shannon Doolin. As always, thank you so much to our Patreon supporters for keeping us going. If you would like to support us on Patreon, you can do so. Patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. Until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of 